something that helps us to love you more and love you deeper. And this will lead to us accepting the call that you've called on every single one of our lives to leave all together. And Jesus, I pray that you will speak to every single one of our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen. Anybody like the beach like me? I, I kind of like the beach. Now, you got to be careful at the beach if you're the shade of skin that I am. And I learned this lesson a few weeks ago. Uh, but I will tell you, I'll tell you this, I, I, this is not recently because, uh, no offense, but the beaches here in, in the Gulf are not the greatest beaches in the world. There's better ones out there. But I'm thinking of, about a time when I was actually in Southern California, um, and I was sitting on the beach, and I was watching the waves. And, you know, each wave kind of builds up as it comes in, and it approaches the, the, the sand, and it ascends out of, like, just the ocean, you know, and it takes shape. And there's like these, these deep green colors underneath the water, and they, they kind of come up and they turn into this almost like, kind of like translucent, translucent, like aquamarine color, you know, so the colors are changing, it's coming up, it's getting the foamy like white cap as it builds, and it's, it's a sculpture in motion really is what this is, and, and it, it kind of comes up just like this like, uh, shavings or something like coming out of, out of the water, and, 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 and honestly... I don't know about you guys, but every time I'm at a, a beach like this where there's like these big waves, the sheer elegance of the, just watching that is almost enough to take my breath away. It's incredible. It really, really is. And, and you know, I can remember, you know, the wave that I was fixed upon, it, it crashes onto the sand, you know, like a, a work of art toppling from its pedestal. But before I can feel the loss of that wave, Another one is rushing to take its place, sweeping upward and forward and just all this awesome, mesmerizing beauty. And then comes another, and then another, and then another in an unending processional, right? Anybody else ever have this experience at the beach? Like you just feel in awe and you're just like mesmerized by how awesome this is. I mean, it's, we, we take it for granted a lot of times. But there's a verse that came to my mind when I was sitting there, and it was this verse all things were made through him, and without him nothing has been made that has been made. And I thought to myself, what are the waves telling us about Jesus? What are the waves telling us about Jesus? I believe that an artist is revealed in the work that they create and in the abundance of the work created. You guys agree with that? I believe this. Now, think, think of the ocean. I want you to picture the ocean in your mind, okay? If you want to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. I give you permission. Just don't keep them closed the rest of the sermon. Uh, but if, picture the ocean, okay? Right? Right now, there are, are breakers as we speak that are thundering on the reef 100 yards out in the ocean. And beyond that, there is open ocean. Just open, open ocean. What does this tell us about Jesus? What words come to mind? Well, I can think of a few. Majestic, powerful, wild, dangerous, right? Yes, it's temp temp temptuous. You know, you know, there's storms, there's hurricanes, there's these things that happen, kind of like the cleansing of the temple, right? Ezra Pound wrote these words. They said, his eye is like the gray o, o the sea, the sea that brooks no voyaging, but also gently playful. Think about this. It's, it, it, it's temptuous, but it's also the waters that comes in. It's playful as it laps around your feet. 
gently swirling around your toes, pulling the sand out from underneath you. Isn't it? It's a whole bunch of things all wrapped up into one. And I remember looking, looking down at this particular beach a while ago, and, and scattered at my feet, there were like thousands of shells on the beach. Not every beach has this, but this beach did. Delicate, intricate, they're like the work of a jeweler. An artist with very small tools and an exceptional eyesight. The detail in these little shells. And, and if all of this is the work of an artist's hands, what does it tell us about the artist? Have you ever thought about this stuff? Anybody? Want to raise a hand? You, if you considered these things? Okay, a few. Okay. At least I'm not alone in this. Creation is epic, but it's also intimate. It's both. His, the, the artist, Jesus, is epic, but he's also intimate. Everywhere there is an obsession with beauty and there's an attention to detail. But most of all, I was really just thunderstruck by the abundant generosity strewn around, constantly rolling in. It's as, it's as if someone took the family silver and ran down the beach and was just tossing handfuls here and there like a madman. I mean, how do you ex explain this kind of extravagance? What kind of a person does this? Have you ever thought about this? John chapter 2, there's this story, and I want to begin by reading verse 1. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, pause right here. What is, the, what is the, the tone of voice at this moment, right? It makes, it makes a lot of difference, right, the tone of voice here in these words that Jesus is saying. Is he being aloof? Is there like a, a sigh of impatience? Is, is Jesus in this moment irritated, right? But be careful what you read into the story. Be careful what you read into the story. His response to Mary at first to us in America speaking English seems rude, right? When I first read these words, woman, what does this have to do with me? I would never speak to my own mother that way, right? It comes off like, what are you talking about? Like, what? This doesn't seem like the guy that I know. But, but here's the thing. It can't be rude because we know that Jesus adored her, right? I mean, my goodness, while he's hanging on the cross... In agony from the cross, he's actually thinking about her and arranging for her care with one of his best friends. The beauty of their relationship is actually revealed here as well. She knows all she has to do is ask. There couldn't have been anything condescending in his reply because if you, you know, see her response, she doesn't, you know, say anything to Jesus. She just turns to the, the, the you know, servants and says, hey, do whatever he says, Right? Like, this, this, she, she's not put off by what he says at all. We'll pick it back up in verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff in this story that I could, I could go in different directions and point out different aspects of this story. But there's one I want to focus on here today for the, the point of this message. It says that there were six stone water jars that each held up to 30 gallons. That would be somewhere close to 180 gallons, okay? Now, John makes the point of saying that the jars were filled to the what? To the brim, Okay, so they were full. So it says up to 30 gallons. Well, guess what? It was 30 gallons because they were filled to the brim. Right? You with me so far? And he makes a very point of mentioning this in the book of John. It kind of reminds me of the, the catch that they had when, uh, you know, they, they caught all the fish. And he numbers and at, after, you know, the resurrection, hey, there was 153 large fish. He's very specific with this. In this instance as well, John is saying, hey, there were six stone water jars, and they were filled to the brim. It's about 180 gallons. If you prefer liters, that'd be about 682 liters. If you take the average, like, wine bottle today, that size, this is the equivalent of about 908 bottles of wine. 908. Think about this. Like, I, it, to me, I'm like, that is overkill. Like, that, like I mean, I, the scripture makes a point of telling us exactly how many of these, these, these jars there were and how much they held and even pushes the point to tell us they were filled to the brim. Apparently, the quantity that Jesus produced is important to the story, and I'm not going to begrudge Jesus the right to be generous. John says he thus revealed his glory or manifested his glory. What is it exactly that Jesus revealed? Certainly it was his power over creation, but there is something else here, something beautiful. Jesus did not give them a couple of bottles to wrap up the evening celebration with one last toast. Jesus does what he does, but he does it lavishly. Are you with me? Are you with me? He does it lavishly to the tune of 908 bottles. Now, here is the same stunning generosity that we see pouring forth in creation. Isaiah 6, verse 3 says, They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Man, the beauty of Jesus. The beauty of Jesus. The text declares he hadn't planned on revealing himself at this time. The wedding in Cana. Might this help us with our own prayer lives? Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 says these words Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be what? Open to you. I don't think that Jesus would have urged us to pray if he was not approachable. Jesus would not have told us this in Matthew chapter 7 if God was unapproachable. Bailing the groom, Jesus in, in the wedding in Cana, bailing the groom out of an embarrassing situation wasn't Jesus' intention. My time has not yet come. He didn't come into the wedding in Cana planning on doing what he did. Are you with me? But he ended up doing it anyway. 
and not a bit begrudgingly. 180 gallons, the Bible says, late in the reception. I mean, the the crowd at this point has already emptied the cupboards. It's got to be close to midnight at this point. He could have gotten away with with less. He could have gotten away with, you know, what was typical and making, you know, the, the cheap you know, but, but he goes to the nth degree, right? What joy, what gladness, how generous of him. It's kind of like sunshine. I'm going to talk a lot about nature today. Is that okay with you guys? I enjoy nature, so I think it gives us an idea about who God is. I think about sunshine a lot. Think about this. The daily radiance is, is, is showered upon us, and this, this, this golden goodness, you know? Every single day over so much of the planet, it saturates our world, warming the earth, raising the crops and the fields by silent resurrection, unfolding flowers, causing birds to break out with song with the dawning of each new day. It bathes everything else in light, which then enables us to behold and to enjoy, to live and to work and to explore. I mean, think about this. What a gift sunlight actually is. Most of the time, we take it for granted. And sometimes if you're pale like me, you kind of curse it. (laughs) Right? But what a gift sunlight is coming and going. I'm not a morning person. If you know me, you know I'm not a morning person. But sometimes, even though I'm not a morning person, I do love to get up before the sun rises and to just get up in the darkness of early morning and and nobody else is awake, and just to pray as the dawn comes, to pray through the dawn, to pray through the sunrise. As I find myself actually in this experience, which which it's a struggle, I'll be honest, but when I do this, it, it draws me nearer to God. The room begins to grow lighter and lighter while the spiritual air kind of clears around me with a final amen, the, the golden glowing light of sunrise, it fills the room like the presence of God. Anybody ever experienced that, by the way? Anybody ever do that? I see a couple of you. Think about this. We get hours of sunlight every single day, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gallons of it, if you will, right? Talking about the, the wedding in Cana. And then late afternoon, how beautiful things are when they're backlit, right? I can think about like autumn grains and grasses, there's a picture Michelle put up on her Instagram recently. I, I'm thinking of a, a similar lighting, you know, full heads glowing as if every top was bursting almost with, with kind of like the glory of God. I love that time of year. The, the gaudy splendor of sunset follows and then the waiting period of night to help us to appreciate the gift. I mean, imagine if it was always night. Imagine if dawn never came. But it does come. It comes faithfully, lavishly, making our hearts glad once more. What a gift light is. Light. And it's given in such abundance, we can hardly take it in. Right? I mean, what does sunshine tell us about the personality of Jesus? What does that tell us about Jesus? What does the gift of our senses Tell us about Jesus. My dad's side of the family is all from Colorado. Anybody ever been to Colorado? Anybody? 
I actually love Colorado. It's an awesome part of the country. It's a beautiful area. And I can remember visiting my grandma there in the summertime when I was pretty young. And, uh, you know, they have a lot of, a lot of uh, different, you know, trees and different things than they do in this part of the country. But I remember, like, you know, in summertime there, the, the, the aspen trees, for instance, a lot of aspen trees, they're very kind of fully leafed out after a very wet spring and the, you know, the groves of, of, of the lush and the, and the breeze in their boughs sometimes sounds like a soft, gentle rain. And, you know, and, and I was thinking about, like, when strong winds blow, it, it almost sounds like the surf as it recedes across the beach, right? There's this interconnection between all the different experiences we can have in nature. What generosity would have created this? What generosity would have created this? Bow and leaf and breeze and the human ear just so that we can appreciate the subtleties of the exquisite sounds. What about touch? The tactile experiences around us, right? The warmth of riverside stones baked by the sun. You love to hold those right after you plunge into the cold water, letting the warmth radiate all into your body. Or the comfort of of your spouse's caress and human touch. And smell. Smell. I mean, who would have thought of such a thing, right? We take it for granted, but smell. The pungent earth after a rain, all creation kind of washed and hung out to dry like the laundry. And hearing. The auditory. Rain on a tin roof. The laughter of your child. Music. And taste, right? We haven't even talked about taste. I can go down a list, man. Watermelon, blue cheese, hot sauce, you know, chocolate. I, I can go, like, think about taste. There is a reason, by the way, we're warned against gluttony in the Bible because taste is, is a gift from God and things taste great. And <laughs> sometimes we can get a little carried away with that one. But what generosity gave us so much? Beauty answers nearly every question. Bonaventure was a theologian during the Middle Ages, and he responded to this question by saying these words. He says this. He says, whoever, therefore, is not enlightened by such, a splint, by such splendor of created things is blind. Whoever is not awakened by such outcries is deaf. Therefore, open your eyes, alert the ears of your spirit, open your lips, and apply your heart concerning the mirror of things perceived through sensation. We can see God in them as he is in them. Now, I will say this. Sometimes creation does scream a confusing message. There is fear and pain and grief in nature. Fire burns, rivers flood, winds, you know, cause hurricanes. The earth shudders so hard it levels cities. But you got to remember that it was not this way in the Garden of Eden. It was not this way. This was not the way that God intended it to be. Mankind fell. Paul says that that creation groans for the day of its restoration, making it clear that everything is not as it was once meant to be. Are you with me? It's not as it was meant to be. 
People come to terrible conclusions when they assume the world right now is exactly as God intended it to be. The earth is broken. The whole earth is broken. Which only makes the beauty that does flow so generously that much more astounding. When we realize this, that it's broken and messed up, and we do see all this beauty still, it makes it so astounding and reassuring. What do we make of the gift of water? I mean, you can swim in it, you can float on it, you can drink it, you can surf on it. Droplets fall from the sky in staggering abundance, yet it also flows in streams and rivers. It makes one sound as a brook, another as a waterfall, and something else all together in the silence of falling snow. This extravagance, it's almost scandalous. It's almost scandalous. Remember, the, the heart of the artist is revealed in their work. Here and there and everywhere, the creations of Jesus spring like characters from a fairy tale all over the earth. I mean, like dragonflies, porcupines, right? A musk ox. Anybody ever seen a musk ox? They're great shaggy kilts hanging around them. They're mighty horns. You know, they look like creatures from some sort of Norse mythology, you know, but they're real, right? They're, they're walking around just north of us somewhere up here on planet Earth right now as we speak. It begs the question, what do we have here? Or better yet, who do we have here? Who do we have here? You must understand an, an important distinction. There is Christianity, and then there is church culture. And often they're not the same thing. Often they are, are far from the same. The personality conveyed through much of Christian culture is not necessarily the personality of Jesus, but the people that are in charge of that particular franchise. Are you with me? Tragically, the world looks at those different takes and those different franchises of Christianity and they see, you know, funny hats or big hair or, or gold chairs and purple curtains and stained glass windows or fog machines, whichever way, and they assume this is what Jesus must be like. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. All I'm saying is when you're confronted with something from Christian culture, ask yourself, is this true of the personality of the God of the wind and the desert, the God of the sunshine and the open sea? I think it's, it's good for us to think about these things and to just internalize these things. This is going to dispel truckloads of uh, just some things that, that are going to distract you and not be, not be for your benefit. And by beginning his gospel here, by the way, John, starting his gospel out with, he has created all things. This is how he begins. John makes it clear that it's quite biblical. But we, we were, we're, we're talking about generosity, letting our eyes roam back and forth, as Shakespeare himself said, from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. From the book of nature to the pages of the Gospels. I'm going to go, I'm going to kind of uh, put my, uh, my, my weapon on kind of full auto here. I'm going to go through a whole bunch of Bible verses, and I want you to stay with me, but I'm, I'm doing this for a point I want to make here as I'm, I'm, I'm landing the plane here. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Again, 
Matthew 8, verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Matthew 8, verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Matthew 20, verse 30, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Mark 5, verse 2, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Again in Mark chapter 5, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Mark 6 says, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And one more in Mark chapter 7, it says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Late into the night, early in the morning, walking down the road in the middle of his supper, at home, while he's traveling in other towns, Jesus offers his time, his words, his touch, flowing freely and generously like the wine at the feast in Cana. To appreciate the reality of it all, remember that what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this is not like it's Superman. Remember his loneliness, his weariness, his humanity. When you think about that, this is utterly remarkable. Particularly in light of the fact that this is a man on a life or death mission. And he is lavish with himself. He gives generously of himself. And that's the key right there, friends, that giving of himself. This is what is so precious. Moses offered leadership, and tirelessly so. Solomon handed out the rarest of wisdom free of charge. Pilate seemed willing to toss to the crowds anyone they wanted. But Jesus gives himself. He gives himself. This is, after all, what he came to give and what we most certainly desperately need. Jesus points to a field of wheat. Imagine trying to count the number of kernels in one anchor. Immeasurable abundance. Turning our gaze to those luxuriant fields, he says in John 12, verse 24. I love the message paraphrase in this, in this verse. It says, he says, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, 
it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. The point he is making is that he has come to share his life with us. But again, again, as soon as I say that, the old religious associations rush in to fog the reality. Imagine walking through a rainforest, diving over a coral reef, simply looking through a microscope at a drop of pond water. Creation itself is still pulsing with life. And it's the life of Jesus that's given generously for the life of all things. He is the creator of all. That's what it says, right? All things that have been made have been made through him. It comes from him. He's the source. He's called the author of life who personally sustains all things. And this is the life that he offers us. He offers it to us. This is the extravagance with which he offers it. Jesus does not only give his life for mankind, he also gives his life to mankind. And it is showered upon us daily like manna. I want you to notice that Jesus the man was generous. He was extravagant. And he still is. He still is. Pray with me. Father God, it is humbling when we pause and we reflect on just who you are. And Jesus, the fact that you you are so generous to us, whether it's in the creation and the things that you have made for us. It tells us in the book of Genesis that everything that was made was made for humanity. It was for us. It was a gift to us. Or whether it's yourself, Jesus, that you came down and you gave yourself for us. You gave yourself to us. As we've talked about in the past couple weeks, that gift that you gave to us was not a temporary moment in time, but it was forever. You became human, Jesus, and you, right now, you still have human form. You will forever have human form. You have given yourself to the human race forever as a gift to us. We thank you. We praise you. We worship you. And we can't wait to see you again, Jesus.